Chapter thirty four of Somehow Good. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Helen Taylor, Oxford, UK. Chapter thirty four of the Reverend Samuel Herrick and a Sunset, the Wedge's Progress, the Baron again, and the Flywheel. How Fenwick knew his name right, and Rosalind didn't. How Sally and her medical adviser were not quite wet through. How he had made her the confidant of a love affair, of a good opening in specialism. More progress of the wedge. How Jerry nearly made dinner late. It was quite true, as Sally had surmised, that poor Prosy had been entangled in the meshes of his octopus. But Sally had also recorded her conviction that he would turn up at tea. He did so, with apologies. You see, he hadn't liked to come away while his mother was asleep, in case she should ask for him when she woke up, and she slept rather longer than usual. "'She may have been trying to do too much lately,' said he, with a beautiful faith in some mysterious activities practised by the goody unseen. Sally cultivated this faith also, to the best of her ability, but she can hardly be said to have embraced it. The way in which she and her mother lent themselves to it was, nevertheless, edifying. "'You mustn't let her overdo it, doctor,' said Rosalind, seriously believing herself truthful, and Sally, encouraged by her evident earnestness, added, "'And make her take plenty of nourishment. That's half the battle.' whereupon Letitia, swept, as it were, into the vortex of a creed, found it in her to say, "'As long as she doesn't get low.' It was not vigorous, and lacked completion, but it reassured and enforced. By the time the little performance was done, everyone in the room believed that Mrs. Vereker did down the stairs, or scoured out saucepans, or at least dusted. Even her son believed, so forcible was the unanimity— Perhaps there was a taint of the incredulous in the minds of Fenwick and Bradshaw, but each thought the other was heart-whole, and neither suspected himself of insincerity. Sally was curious to know exactly what lines the octopus had operated on. That would do later, though. She would get Prosy by himself and make him tell her all about it. In the course of time tea died natural death. Fenwick indulged in a yawn and a great shake, and remembered that he had no end of letters to answer. Mr. and Mrs. Julius Bradshaw suddenly thought, for no reasonable reason, that they ought to be getting back. But they didn't really go home. They went for a walk landward, as it was so windy. Instead, remember that they were only in the third week of their honeymoon. Sally, with Talleyrand-like diplomacy, achieved that she and Dr. Conrad should go for another walk in another direction— the sea was getting up and the glass was going down, and it would be fun to go and see the waves break over the jetty. So said Sally, and Dr. Conrad thought so too, unequivocally. They walked away in the big sea wind, fraught with a great inheritance from the Atlantic of cool warmth and dry moisture, and if you don't know what that means, you know mighty little of the ocean in question. Rosalind watched them through the window, closed perforce, and saw them disappear round the flagstaff with the south cone hoisted, holding their heads on to all appearance. She said to herself, "'Foolish fellow, why can't he speak?' And her husband answered either her thought or her words, though he could hardly have heard them, as he sat driving his pen furiously through letters, with, "'He'll have to confess up, Rosie. You'll see, before he goes.' She made no reply, but, feeling a bit tired, lay down to rest on the sofa. 
and so powerful was the sea air, and the effect of a fair allowance of exercise, that she fell into a doze, in spite of the intensely wakeful properties of Mrs. Lobjoit's horsehair sofa, which only a corrugated person could stop on without a maintained effort, so that sound sleep was impossible. She never became quite unconscious of the scratching pen and the moaning wind, so as she did not sleep, yet did not want to wake, she remained hovering on the borderland of dreams. One minute she thought she was thinking, sanely, about Sally and her silent lover, always uppermost in her thoughts. The next she was alive to the absurdity of some dream-thing one of them had suddenly changed to, unnoticed. Once, half awake, she was beginning to consider seriously whether she could not legitimately approach the octopus on the subject, but only to find the moment after that the octopus, while remaining the same, had become the chubby little English clergyman that had married her to Jerry at Umbala twenty years ago. Then she thought she would wake, and took steps towards doing it, but as ill luck would have it she began to speak before she had achieved her purpose, and the result was, "'Do you remember the Reverend Samuel Herrick, Jerry, at Umbala?' "'Oh, dear, I'm not awake. I, I was talking nonsense.' Jerry laughed. "'Wake up, love,' said he. "'Do your fine intelligence justice. What was it you said? Reverend Samuel who?' "'I forget, darling. I was dreaming.' Then, with a nettle-grasping instinct, as one determined to flinch from nothing, "'Reverend Samuel Herrick. What did you think I said?' "'Reverend Samuel Herrick or Mayrick? Not negotiable. I don't mean the Reverend Sam, whoever he is, but the payee whose account I'm enriching.' He folded the cheque he had been writing into its letter, and enveloped it. But he paused on the brink of its gummed edge, looking over it at Rosalind, who was still engaged getting quite awake. "'I know the name well enough. He's some chap. I expect you saw him in the Chronicle.' "'Very likely, darling. He must be some chap when you come to think of it.' She says this slightly as a mere rounding-off speech, then goes behind her husband's chair, and kisses him over his shoulder as he directs the envelope. "'Marmaduke, Copestake, Dickinson, and Humphreys,' says he, as he writes the names. "'Now I call that a firm and a half. Old Broad Street, E.C. "'That's all, as far as he goes. Now, how about Puckeridge, Limited?' "'Don't write any more, Jerry, dear. You'll spoil your eyes. Come and look at the sunset. Come along.' For a blood-red forecast of storm in the west, surer than the surest human barometer, is blazing through the window that cannot be opened for the blow, and turning the shell-work rabbit and the story of Goliath into gold and jewels. The sun is glancing through a rift in the cloud-bank, to say good-night to the winds and seas, and wish them joy of the high old time they mean to have in his absence in the dark. The lurid level rays that make an indescribable glory of Rosalind's halo growth of hair, as Jerry sees it against the window, have no ill-boding in them for either. No more, that is, than always has belonged to a rough night closing over the sea, and will do so always until the sea is ice again on a planet sick to death. As he draws her arm around his neck, and she his round her waist, and they glance at each other in the flaming glow, there is no thought in either of any ill impending for themselves. "'I wish Sarah were here to see you now, Rosie.' "'So should I, love, only she would see you, too, and then she'd make you vainer than you are already. All men are patches of vanity, but I forgive you.' She kisses him slightly in confirmation. 
They certainly were a wonderful sight, the two of them, a minute ago, when the light was at its best. Yes, they wished Sally had been there, each on the other's account. It was difficult to say which of the two had thought of Sally first. Both had this habit of registering the rapport of everything to Sally as a first duty. But a sunset glow like this one lasts, maybe, little longer than a highest song-note may be sustained. It was to die. But Rosalind and Jerry watched it out. His cheek was resting in the thick mass of soft gold, just moving slightly to be well aware of it. The sun-ray touched it, last of anything in the room, and died. "'What's that, dear love? Why?' It was Rosalind that spoke. "'Nothing, dearest. No, nothing, indeed. Nothing at all. Jerry, what was it? What was what, dear? What made you leave off so suddenly? For the slightly intermittent movement of his cheek on her hair, what hairy thing is there that does not love to be stroked, had stopped, and his hand that held hers had slipped from it and rested for a moment on his own forehead. It's gone now. It was a sort of recurrence. I haven't been having them lately. "'Come and sit down, love. There now, don't fidget. What was it about?' "'Does he look pale?' thinks Rosalind. "'Or is it only the vanished glow?' "'He is uncommunicative. Suppose they go out for a turn before dinner,' he suggests. "'They can walk down to the jetty to meet Sarah and her medical adviser. "'Soon said, soon settled. Ten minutes more, and they are on their way to the fisher-dwellings, "'experiencing three-quarters of a gale, it appears, "'on the testimony of an ancient mariner in a blue-and-white-striped woollen shirt, "'who knows about things. "'That was very queer, that recurrence. "'Thus Jerry, after leaving the ancient mariner. "'It was just as the little edge of the sun went behind the bank, "'and what do you think my mind hooked it on to, of all things in the world? "'Rosalind couldn't guess, of course.' Why, a big wheel I was trying to stop that went slowly, slowly like the sun vanishing, and then just as the sun went it stopped. Was there anything else? Entire concealment of alarm is all Rosalind can attend to. No end of things all mixed up together. One thing very funny, a great big German chap. I say, Rosalind. What, Jerry, darling? Do you recollect when we were in Switzerland, up at that last high-up place, Salisburg, Sonnenberg, do you remember the great fat baron that gave me those cigars and sang? Remember the baron? Of course I do, perfectly. Rosalind contrived a laugh. Was he in it? Perhaps this was rash, but then not to say it would have been cowardice when it was on her tongue-tip. Let the nettle be grasped. He was in it, singing and all, but the whole thing was mixed up and queer. It all went quite suddenly, and I should have lost him out of it as one loses a dream if it hadn't been for seeing him in Switzerland. It was something to hold on by, do you understand? I think I do. I had forgotten what I was dreaming about when I woke on the sofa and talked that nonsense, but I held on to the name for all that. But then that wasn't a real person, the Reverend, what was he, Herrick or Derrick? Rosalind passed the point by. Jerry, darling, I want you to do as I tell you. Don't worry your head about it, but keep quiet. If memory is coming back to you, it will come all the quicker for letting your mind rest. Let it come gradually. I see what you mean. You think it really was a recollection of B.C.? I think so. Why should it not? But it's all gone clean away again, and I can't remember anything of it at all. And There was heaps. Never mind. If it was real, it will come back. Wait and be patient." Rosalind's mind laid down this rule for itself. 
to think and act exactly as though there had been nothing to fear. Even if all the past had been easy to face, it would have shrunk from suggestions. So thought she to herself, perhaps with a little excusable self-deception, otherwise the natural thing would have been to repeat to him all the Baron's story. No, she would not say a word or give a hint. If it was all to come back to him, it would come back. If not, she could not bring it back, and she might, in the attempt to do so, merely plunge his injured mind into more chaotic confusion, much safer to do nothing. But why this sudden stirring of his memory, just now of all times? Had anything unusual happened lately? Naturally, the inquiry set her mind back to yesterday first, then to the day before. No, there was nothing there. Then to generalities. Was it the sea-bathing, the sea-air? And then on a sudden she thought of the nearest thing at hand, that she should have thought of at first. Yes, she would ask Dr. Conrad about that. Why hadn't she thought of that before? The galvanic battery. Meanwhile, despite her injunctions to her husband to wait and be patient, his mind kept harking back on this curious recollection. Luckily, so it seemed to her, at any rate for the present, he did not seem to recall the Baron's recognition of himself, or to connect it with this illusion or revival. He appeared to recollect the Baron's personality, and his liberality with cigars, but little else. If he was to be reminded of this, it must be after she had talked it over with Vereker. They struggled with the weather along the seaward face of the little old fisher-town. The great wind was blowing the tar-laden atmosphere of the nets and the all-pervading smell of tar landward, and substituting flecks of driven foam that it forced to follow landward too, for all they tried to stop and rest. The population was mostly employed getting the boats up as close to the houses as practice permitted, and the capstans were all a-creak with the strain, and one shrieked for a dab of lard and got it just as they passed. The man with Bessie and the anchor on his arms— for it was his, paused in his rotations with one elbow on his lever and one foot still behind the taut cable he was crossing. His free hand saluted, and then, his position being defined, he was placed on a moral equality with his superiors and could converse. The old-fashioned hat-touch, now dying out, is just as much a protest against the way social order parts man from man as it is an acknowledgment of its necessity. The lover of Bessie and Eleanor and Kate was disposed to ignore the efforts of the wind. There might, he said, be a bit of sea on, come two or three in the morning, at the full of the tide. The wind might get it up a bit, if it went round southard. The wind was nothing in itself, it was a direction it came from. It got a bad character from imputed or vicarious vice. It would be a bit rough to get a boat off. The lady might get a wet in. At which point Rosalind interrupted. Nothing was further from her thoughts, she said, than navigation in any form. But had the speaker seen her daughter go by, the young lady that swam? For Sally was famous. He hadn't himself, but maybe young Benjamin had, who, taking leave to speak from this, announced frankly that he had seen a young lady, in company with her sweetheart, go by nigh an hour agone. The tattooed one diluted her sweetheart down to her gentleman, reluctantly. In his land and the one there would soon be for the freckled and blue-eyed Benjamin, there was no such artificial nonsense. Perhaps some sense of this showed itself in the way he resumed his work. "'Now, young Benjamin, action!' said he, and the two threw themselves again against the pole of the mollified capstan. 
If Rosalind fancied this little incident had put his previous experience out of her husband's mind, she was mistaken. He said, as they passed on in the direction of the jetty, "'I think I should like to wind up capstans. It would suit me down to the ground.' but then became thoughtful, and just as they were arriving at the jetty, showed that his mind had run back by asking suddenly, "'What was that fat baron's name?' "'Diedrich Kammerkreutz.' Rosalind gave him her nearest recollection, seeing nothing to be gained by doing otherwise. Any concealment, too, the chances were, would make matters worse instead of better. "'It was Kreutzkammer, in my dream, or whatever you call it.' They stopped and looked at each other, and Rosalind replied, "'It was, Kreutzkammer. Oh, dear!' rather as one who had lost breath from some kind of blow. He saw her distress instantly, and was all alive to soothe it. "'Don't be frightened, darling love,' he cried, and then his great good-humoured laugh broke into the tenderness of his speech, without spoiling it. He was so like Jerry, the boy that rode away that day in the dog-cart, when there was only Mamma for the girl.' "'But when all's said and done,' said she, harking back for a reprieve, "'perhaps you only recollected Sonnenberg in your dream better than I did, just now.' She hung fire of repeating the name Herrick. "'Ach, so,' he answered, teutonically, for the moment, from association with the Baron. "'I suppose it's all true, dearest, and that I'm going to come to life again. What does it matter? It can't alter us that I can see. Could anything that you could imagine?' I should be Jerry for you, and you would be Rosie for me, to the end of it. Her assent had a mere echo of hesitation, but he detected it, and went on, Unless, you mean, I remembered the hypothetical wife. Yes, partly. Well, I tell you honestly, Rosie, darling, if I do, I shall keep her to myself, a plaguing intrusive female to come between us, but there's no such person. At which they both laughed remembering the great original non-exister. But even here was a little thorn, for Mrs. Harris brought back the name the Baron had known Jerry by. He did not seem to have resumed it in his dream. The jetty ran a little way out to sea. Thus phraseology in use. It might have reconsidered itself and said that the jetty had at some very remote time run out to sea and stopped there. Ever since, the sea had broken over it at high tides, and if you cared at all about your clothes, you wouldn't go to the end of it, if you were me, because the salt gets into them and spoils the dye. Besides, you have to change everything. There was a dry place at the end of the jetty, and along the edge of the dry place were such things as cables go round and try hard to draw, as we drew the teeth of our childhood with string. But they fail always, although their pulls are never irresolute. On two of these sat Sally and the doctor, in earnest conversation. Rosalind and her husband looked at each other and said, No. This might have been rendered, Matters are no forwarder. It connected itself, without acknowledgement, with the distance apart of the two cable-blocks. Never mind, let them alone. Are you going to sit there till the tide goes down? Oh, is that you? We didn't see you coming. You'll have to look sharp or you'll be wet through. "'No, we shan't. You only have to wait a minute and get in between.' Easier said than done. A big wave, that was just in time to overhear this conversation imperfectly, thought it would like to wet Sally through, and leapt against the bulwark of the jetty. But it spent itself in a huge, torrential deluge while Sally waited a minute. A friend followed it, but made a poor figure by comparison. 
Then Sally got in between, followed by the doctor. Well, they were not really so very wet, after all. Sally was worst, as she was too previous. She got implicated in the friend's last dying splash, while Prosy got nearly scot-free. So said Sally to Fenwick as they walked briskly ahead towards home, leaving the others to make their own pace. Because it was a case of changing everything, and dinner was always so early at St. Sennans. Let them go on in front. I want to talk to you, Dr. Conrad. Rosalind, perhaps, thinks his attention won't wander if she takes a firm tone. Doesn't feel sure about it otherwise. Maybe Sally is too definitely in possession of the citadel to allow of an incursion from without. She continues, I have something to tell you. Don't look frightened. It is nothing but what you have predicted yourself. My husband's memory is coming back. I don't know whether I ought to say I am afraid, or I hope it is so. But are you sure it is so? Yes, listen. It has all happened since you and Sally left. And then she narrated to the doctor, whose preoccupation had entirely vanished, first the story of the recurrence, and Fenwick's description of it in full, and then the incident of the Baron at Sonnenberg, but less in detail. Then she went on, walking slower, not to reach the house too soon. Now this is the thing that makes me so sure it is recollection. Just now, as we were coming to the jetty, he asked me suddenly what was the Baron's name. I gave a wrong version of it, and he corrected me. This does not meet an assent. Well, that was nothing. He had heard it at Sonnenberg. I think much more of the story itself, the incident of the wheel, and so on. Are you quite sure you never repeated this German gentleman's story to Mr. Fenwick? Quite sure. Hmm. So you see, I want you to help me think. May I talk to him about it? Speak openly to him? Yes, tomorrow, not today. I want to hear what he says tonight. He always talks a great deal when we're alone at the end of the day. He will do so this time. But I want you to tell me about an idea I have. What idea? Did Sally tell you about the galvanic battery on the pier? Dr. Conrad stopped in his walk and faced round towards his companion. He shook out a low whistle, an arpeggio down. Did she tell you? repeated Rosalind. Miss Sally... Come, come, doctor, don't be ridiculous. Say Sally. The young man's heart gave a responsive little jump, and then said to itself, But perhaps I'm only a family friend, and climbed down. However, on either count, Sally was nicer than Miss Sally. Sally told me about the electric entertainment at the pier-end. I'm sorry I missed it. But if that's what's done it, Fenwick must try it again. Mustn't try it again? No, must try it again. Why do you think it bad for him to remember? I don't know what to think. My notion is that a man has a right to his own mind. Anyhow, one has no right to keep him out of it. Oh, no, besides, Jerry isn't out of it in this case, not out of his mind. I didn't mean that way. I mean excluded from participation in himself, you see. Oh, yes, I quite understand. Now, listen, Doctor, I want you to do me a kindness. Say nothing, even to Sally, till I tell you. Say nothing. You may trust me. Rosalind feels no doubt on that point, the more so that the little passage about Sally's name has landed her at some haven of the doctor's confidence that neither knows the name of just yet. He is not the first man that has felt a welcome in some trifling word of a very special daughter's mother. But woe be to the mother who is premature and spoils all. Poor Prosy is too far gone to be a risky subject of experiment. But he won't say anything, not he. 
After all, you know, he continues, it may all turn out a false alarm, or false hope, should I say? No answer. And he doesn't press for one. He is in a land of pitfalls. What have you and your medical adviser been talking about all the while there in the mid-ocean? Fenwick forgets the late event with pleasure. Sally, with her hair threatening to come down in the wind, is enough to stampede a troop of nightmares. Poor Prosy, is all the answer that comes at present. Perhaps if that uncontrolled black coil will be tractable, she will concede more anon. You can't get your hair back under your hat and walk quick and talk all at the same time. Poorer than usual, Sarah. But really, just at this corner, it's as much as you can do, if you have skirts, to get along at all, to say nothing of the way such loose ends as you indulge in turn on you and flagellate your face in the wind. Oh, the vicious energy of that stray ribbon! Fancy having to use up one hand to hold that! But a lull came when the corner was fairly turned, in the lee of a home of many nets, where masses of foam-fleck had found a respite and leisure to collapse a bubble at a time. You could see the prism scale each had to itself, each of the millions, if you looked close enough. Collectively their appearance was slovenly. A chestnut-coloured man a year old, who looked as if he meant some day to be a boatswain, was seated on a pavement that cannot have soothed his unprotected flesh, flint pebbles can't, however round, and enjoying the mysterious, impalpable nature of this foam. However, even for such hands as his, and Sally wanted to kiss them badly, they couldn't stop. She got her voice, though, in the lull. "'Yes, a little. I found out all about Prosy.' "'Found out about him?' "'I've made him talk about it. It's all about his ma and a young lady he's in love with.' Fenix, <laughs> or, <laughs> or both joined together, was probably only meant to hand the speaker on, but the tone made her suspicious. She asked him why he had said that, imitating it, on which he answered, "'Why shouldn't he?' "'Because,' said Sally, "'if you fancy Prosy's in love with me, you're mistaken.' "'Very good. Cut along, Sarah. You've made him talk about the young lady he's in love with.' "'Well, he as good as talked about her, anyhow. I understood quite plain. He wants to marry her awfully, but he's afraid to say so to her because of his ma.' "'Doesn't Mrs. Vereker like her?' "'Dotes upon her,' he says.' "'Ugh! No, it isn't that. It's the lugging the poor girl into his ma's sphere of influence. He's conscious of his ma, but adores her. Only he's aware she's overwhelming, and always gets her own roundabout way. I prefer Tishy's dragon, if you ask me.' At that point Sally is quite unconscious of Fenwick's amused eyes fixed on her, and his smile in ambush. She says the last words through a hairpin, while her hands take advantage of the lull to make a good job of that rope of black hair. She will go on and tell all the story, so Fenwick doesn't speak. Surprised at first by the tale of Dr. Conrad's young lady, his ideas have by now fructified. Sally continues, "'He's often told me he thought GPs were better single for their wives' sakes. <laughs> that sounds wrong somehow, but it isn't that. It's his ma, entirely.' I suppose he's told you about the epileptiform disorders? No, he hadn't. Well, now, fancy Prosy not telling you that. He's become quite an authority since those papers he had in the Lancet, and he's thinking of giving up general practice. Sir Dioscorides Gaylor's a cousin of his, you know, and would pass on his practice to Prosy on easy terms. House in Seymour Street, Portman Square. Great authority on epilepsy and epileptiform disorders. Wants a successor who knows about him. "'Naturally. 
wants three thousand pounds naturally big fees but he would make it easy for prosy that would be all right soon manage that fenwick speaks with the confidence of one in a thriving trade the deity of commerce security can manage all things insecurity is atheism in the city but then he adds vereker wouldn't marry even with a house and big fee consultations because he's afraid his mother would hector over his wife is that it that's it it's his goody mother i say it is blowing it was and they had emerged from the shelter into the wind no more talk as fenwick sea-blown and salted resorted to the lodging-house allowance of fresh water and soap in a perfunctory and formal preparation for dinner his mind ran continually on sally's communication as for the other young lady being valid that he dismissed as nonsense not worth consideration vereker had been resorting to a furtive hint of a declaration disguised as fiction it was a fabula narrata de sally mutato nomine if she didn't see through it and respond in kind it would show him how merely a friend he was and nothing more perhaps he doesn't understand our daughter's character said fenwick to rosalind when he had repeated the conversation to her of course he doesn't she replied no young man of his sort understands girls the least the other sort of young man understands the other sort of girls and then a passing wonderment had touched her mind of how strange it was that sally should be one of her own sort so very distinctly how about inheritance she grew reflective and silent over it and then roused herself to wonder illogically why jerry hadn't gone on talking the reason was that as his mind dwelt happy and satisfied on the good prospect vereker would have if he could step into his cousin's specialist practice as a consulting physician with a reputation already begun his thoughts were caught with a strange jerk what and whence was a half-memory of some shadowy store of wealth that was to make it the easiest thing in the world for him to finance the new departure it had nothing to do with the vast mysterious possibilities of credit it was a recollection of some resourceful backing he was entitled to somehow and he was reminded by it of his dream about the furniture we told you of that but with reservation when he woke from the sleep dream of the furniture he in a short time could distinctly identify it as a dream and was convinced no such furniture had ever existed he could not shake off this waking dream and it clogged his mind painfully and made him silent so much so that when rosalind soon completed for the banqueting board looked into the adjoining room to see what progress jerry was making and why he was silent she only saw the back of a powerful frame in its shirt-sleeves and a pair of hands holding on each side an unbrushed head the elbows indispensable to them rested on the window-bar look alive jerry darling you'll make dinner late anything wrong dear love sudden anxiety in her voice is it another another what no need to define exactly a sort of one fenwick answers not so bad as the last hardly describable never mind he made no effort towards description and his wife did not press him for it what good end could be gained by fidgeting him but she knew now that her life would be weighted with an anxiety hard to bear until his hesitating return of memory should make its decision of success or failure a guarantee of the latter would have been most to her liking 
But how could she hope for that now? End of chapter 34